All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter. We are continuing in this great epistle. And I have been kind of, at the end of the epistle, been fleshing out this last passage of Scripture, or not the last one, but the close to the end, about the obligation of a believer to resist the enemy. And that is our uh, obligation to do that. And so look at First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. Let me read that again. It says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So that, but resist him, firm in your faith. I'm stuck there for a while just to kind of flesh that out in these weeks, looking at the ways in which we are to resist the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we continue in the Word of God, I thank you, Lord, for this epistle. I thank you, Lord, for all the things that we have learned in it. I know, Lord, that it is a book that can really establish us as serious believers because, Lord, it is in the context of suffering and persecution that uh, your apostle Peter wrote this. And, Lord, it's for us today, too. It's for all believers of all times. And, Lord, I pray the principles and the things that we're learning in it and have learned would uh, we would be thinking about, that we would be practicing. And, Lord, as we come to this exhortation and this obligation we have as believers, Lord, make us those kind of believers that are not duped by the enemy and his lies, but are keen to what he is doing and know how to resist him so he flees from us. Enable us to do that by your word and spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Not too long ago, I read an article um, by a man who wrote a book called Biology. It's not what you're thinking. It's a book about how we buy things. And then he wrote a latest book called Brainwashed. He highlights in the book the tricks companies use to manipulate our minds to persuade us to buy. And he uses Whole Foods as an example. I like Whole Foods. They're too expensive, but I like them. And so he uses the Whole Foods store in New York City as an example. And he says, just think of it for a minute. You go up an escalator, and it brings you straight into the realm of fresh-cut flowers, immediately priming you to think of freshness in their products. And that suggestion is carried throughout your whole store experience. And then the prices for the flowers and the fresh fruit and the vegetables are scrawled in, uh, on chalk, little chalkboards, uh, of course, a cut 
of Black Slate prompting your thoughts of an outdoor farmer's market. Now, these signs are actually mass-produced, he said. The slate is plastic. The prices are set at the chain's Texas headquarters, and the chalk is indelible. And then, of course, you come into stacked crates of melons, and actually one large cardboard box that has been designed to reinforce the idea of the rustic old-time simplicity in a farmer's market. And so now you are at Whole Foods, and you are now in their realm in which they're going to get you to buy things. Now, we don't think that way, really, because we're just going in there. But he was saying that that's brainwash, brainwashing. Now, try to imagine how much you've been shaped by a lifetime of brainwashing. It's kind of frightening if we really think about it. However, the effectiveness of commercial brainwashing should highlight our vulnerability to something even more sinister and evil, and that is spiritual brainwashing. If retailers and marketers have strategies that are successful for you to spend more cash in their stores, how much more successful is the is, and far less obvious is the powerful priming and seducing of the master marketer, Satan himself. He markets his products every single day to us. Day after day, in both our conscience and subconscious, the evil one is brainwashing us with a multitude of covert and overt messages. See, so do you, do you question his power? Or do you doubt your weakness standing up against such a master? This particular author got a advertiser to actually create a scenario. And what this what he did was he got two advertising creatives, he calls, to visit his office and discuss marketing ideas. On, his, on their journey across town, this particular man arranged carefully placed clues to appear uh, on posters and on balloons and in shop windows and on T-shirts by passing uh, uh, pedestrians. And when they arrived, the two creatives were given 20 minutes to come up with a campaign for a fictional taxidermy store. This particular man gave them also a sealed envelope that was only to be opened once they presented their campaign. 20 minutes later, they presented to them uh, their campaign, and then they opened the envelope, and their plans for this taxidermy store were remarkably similar. At similar it was a similar ad to the signs and the indicators that this man put around town before they got to his office. In fact, 95% overlap was discovered. So if 
this particular man can do that to advertisers, think about the devil, what he can do with you and with me. So what is the solution? This is the solution. Bible washing. God has provided his word to protect and purge us from the devil's brainwashing. The Bible helps us to see the existence of diabolical brainwashing. It gives us a second sense, an ability to discern the uh, a faculty of seeing that enables us to distinguish the reality of something from perception. The Bible also teaches it's the easiness of brainwashing. It explains and demonstrates how weak and uh, seducible we are. That's painful. The Bible also analyzes the elements of brainwashing. It uncovers the number of the devil's strategies, both by the numerous descriptions and by fearful examples. It helps us to detect the first advance before he gets a foothold in our minds. The Bible underlines the evil of spiritual brainwashing. We don't just risk losing a few dollars as a result of succumbing to the marketing techniques, but if we succumb to his techniques, one can lose their very soul. The Bible also shows the way of escape from the devil's brainwashing. When we hear the world's cry, conform, 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 we turn to our Bibles and we read only this, do not conform, Romans chapter 12, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. In fact, if we read our Bibles with faith and prayer, our minds will be renewed that in a way that we will eventually have to say, with the Apostle Paul, we have the mind of Christ. Now, could you say that today, that you have the mind of Christ? See, this article should really emphasize the importance of practicing these exhortations from our passage that, will, that we will obtain really the stability and the victory over Satan's strategies and tactics. That is the exhortation for humility, which we covered, the exhortation for vigilance in our spiritual uh, journey, and also the exhortation, as we've been parking on, of resistance. See, we have been considering these ways and directives to resist the enemy. And so that has been our title of the sermons last several times. And so we have already seen and covered the first couple of one. The first one is to resist the adversary in the faith. In other words, God has given believers a detection system, making it possible for them to be aware of Satan's evil methods. The alarm system is the faith. The Christian's personal confidence in God and the system of teaching given to them, given to us by God in the Scripture. And truly, as Christians learn scriptural truth, they become strong in 
faith and doctrine and their convictions grow deep in deeply rooted in the very word of god and so as they that happens then god's word becomes light to them and that word exposes satan's dark mixture of lies and half-truths, and because Satan is the master scripture twister, the Christian must fill his mind with God's word so it bends his and her thinking away from the world's thinking and towards God's thinking and then God's will. A second way to resist the enemy that I brought up is to resist the adversary by discerning your strengths, weaknesses, and tendencies towards sin, and then fighting against them with the word of God. That's what we looked at last time. Now, the Christian must then learn to recognize their own pattern of sin because each category of sin has its own temptations. Recognizing your particular pattern of sin lets you know what you actually need to work on in your life, if you're aware of those things. Also, knowing other people's patterns of sin in the church helps us emphasize uh, and empathize and aid our fellow Christians in areas that they struggle and that we would do it in a gracious and non-judgmental way. So then, believers as they grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, they become more self-aware. And as they are exposed to more and more Scripture, one area they become aware of is their own patterns of sin. From that, they really do want to live a life pleasing to the Lord, and they realize they will struggle with their sin, and they do want to struggle that struggle to end with them laying that sin aside and, of course, putting on righteous behavior. So that brings me today to the third way to resist the antagonist, and it's this, by maintaining a sanctified imagination. A sanctified imagination. Now, the imagination specifically is important because it's, it's really specifically important to control because it's either the playground of good or evil. The ability to imagine is a God-given gift. But if the imagination is fed with filth, the imagination will become tarnished and actually dirtied. All sin not least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. See, we need Bible washing in our imaginations. If battle-ready Christians are going to maintain a peaceful and a sound mind, it will be because God is guarding it. As Philippians chapter 4 tells us, it says this, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
which means that the peace of God will actually stand as a sentinel or be posted as an armed guard before your mind, your emotions, your passions, and your will, not allowing things to enter that will disrupt that particular peace that you have with the Lord. That's what God says he will do. Of course, we have our part to do also. We have to think a certain way. We have to be examining our imagination. What are we thinking about a lot? So Apostle Paul also says in Colossians, again to the Colossian church, he says in the middle, at the end of the passage, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. See, so what a person delights in, that is what their mind will dwell upon. He who delights in money finds his mind taken up with it. Therefore, the covetous person is said to mind earthly things. Again, Philippians says to us again, and it warns us against those who appear to appear to walk with God, but they really don't. Look what it says. It says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And then he says in verse 20, But our for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that you can either have an earthly mindset and think that way all the time or most of the time, or you can have a heavenly mindset and think the way we ought to think according to what the Bible teaches us. And that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a separation, a disconnection between the way you used to think and what you thought was important to what now God thinks is important. And now what he thinks is important becomes what we're, we think is important. And, and so that is the shift for all of us as we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm referring to this morning of developing a Christian mind. God calls us in his word to a massive and positive discipline of the mind. You can never have a Christian mind without reading the scriptures, without listening and hearing preaching. And I'm talking about regularly. Just like you eat food on a regular basis so you stay healthy, the word of God is food. You have to be in the Word of God, and chew on the Word of God so it gets into your spiritual system so you become spiritually strong and you develop a Christian mind. So you can never have a Christian mind without reading the Scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. Now, why is there a noticeable decline in Christians who don't think as Christians? Why is there a noticeable decline? Well, they have succumbed to a secular drift. Four hours, four and a half hours of media a day, media filled with violence and 
promiscuity and adultery and incest and homosexuality and the twisting of gender, gender identity. All those things are happening on a regular basis in, in all the media that is presented to people that are watching it on the Internet or watching it through uh, CDs or watching it in some other way. Researchers have calculated that children between the age of 6 and 18 will consume 1,600 hours of junk in their minds from media outlets over that period of time. The Christian mind is not formed and informed by biblical truth. Christians leave their 12 billion cells unguarded unthinking, undisciplined. If there is little biblical input, there can be only little or no biblical output. So the biblical mental program cannot coexist with worldly programming. So can a believer have a Christian mind today? Can a believer have the mind of Christ? Well, let's take our Bibles for a minute and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Just a few passages of Scripture before I look at other things and just focusing on what it means to develop a Christian mind. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, it says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So in other words, in that passage of Scripture, it's kind of saying to believers, listen, grow up. Don't remain a child and an infant in your thinking, theological thinking, biblical thinking, but grow up so you don't remain an infant, but you start becoming mature in your thinking. But if you're going to become ignorant in something, become ignorant of evil. Don't be thinking about those kind of things. See, so people in our day really are despising. They're despising the instruction of the mind by the word of God. We kind of live in an anti-meat age. I mean anti-spiritual meat. Like Paul says to the Corinthians, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking as mere men? So believers remain spiritual influence and display a behavior like little children who do not know the difference between right and wrong, God's way and every other way. And then a passage of Scripture like Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse number 13. Look what it says. For everyone who participates or partakes only of milk is not accustomed to, to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Of course, uh, the word of righteousness is the very word of God. And of course, again, the Romans passage of Scripture, do not be conformed to the world, but 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then to answer that question, can a Christian have the mind of Christ? Well, look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we, Christians, believers, and he's talking about the Corinthian church, maybe the church that had the most problems in Scripture. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. So the goal of the Holy Spirit of God is to bring you and I to the place where you and I have the mind of Christ, that we think biblically, that we think scripturally, that we are becoming Bible-washed with the Word of God. And so how does that happen? Well, there's a very... Uh, important way to develop a Christian mind, which I believe is kind of lost today in uh, evangelicalism, if I may say it like that. And what is that? It is the very discipline of biblical meditation. Biblical meditation. In the Old Testament, meditation, as David, King David pointed out, is a mind that delights in the things of God, a mind that delights in God himself, where David says in Psalm 119, in verse number 97, he says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, that, that is a mindset that we definitely need today that we are thinking about the Word of God. Why are we thinking about it? Because we love it. You always do what you love. If you don't love it, then you won't spend time thinking about it. You'll, you'll spend time thinking about what you love. That's what you'll do. David, and of course David had everything. He was a king, right? He, he understood battle. He understood the things that were important in life. And yet, he's presenting to us in this passage what is the most important. That I can't wait to think about God's word. In fact, I love it so much, I think about it all day. In fact, another passage of scripture, he says it like this. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. He says, I can't wait till the day is over to get to the place where I can really think about the word of God and, oh, I'm not knocked knocked from pillar to post. See, David couldn't wait to have some quiet time in order to occupy his attention on the word of God. He couldn't wait to do that. And that's what he did. He he wanted the word of God because he loved the word of God. This means that God's people must slow their pace and have time for God's truth to sink into their thinking. Christians really should, from time to time, ask themselves questions in order to assess their thought life. Questions like, where are my affections directed? What do I really love? Question like, about what do I spend a lot of my time thinking about? Are my thoughts and imaginations more often evil or good? 
Am I setting my inner disposition on things above or mainly on things on the earth? See, those are things that are worthy for us to consider in the, in the backdrop of an enemy who's against us, an enemy who wants to keep us from the truth, wants to keep us ignorant, wants to keep us earthly-minded, worldly-minded. That's what he wants to do. If he can keep you there, he will make you ineffective and possibly lay aside your gifts, your spiritual gifts, to be used in the building up of the body of Christ. It was Puritan Thomas Watson who said this. He said, a Christian enters into meditation as a man enters the hospital, that he may be healed. Meditation heals the soul of its deadness and earthly, earthliness. Watson went on to say that the devil is the enemy of meditation. He knows that meditation is the means to compose the heart and to bring it into a gracious frame. Satan is content that you should be hearing and praying Christians so that you be not meditating Christians. He can't... He can, it says, he can stand your small shot provided that you do not put in the bullet. And of course, he's talking about the bullet is meditating, right? Meditating upon the word of God. That's, that's something that we need to practice to do. So Satan is opposed to this great spiritual exercise of biblical meditation. Has the devil won on this point? I believe it's taken much ground. In fact, he's managed to get the whole notion of biblical meditation out of the Christian conversation. The kind of current medication or kind of current meditation is that is in fashion today is in identified more with non-Christian systems of thought than of biblical Christianity. Meditation today is associated with what? Yoga? Transcendental meditation? Relaxation therapies? Roman Catholic spirituality? Mysticism? Contemplative prayer? And, And the list goes on. So because false religions have hijacked meditation, some Christians are even suspicious about it altogether today. Today, more than ever, we have access to many kinds of preachers and can turn them on any time that we want. And some people come and tell me that they have listened to four messages this week, including mine. I'm glad they add that. Then they go on to tell me how depressed they are and how their spiritual walk is rocky and their marriage is not so good. Now, I would think that such an abundant exposure to the preached word in one week should produce joy and peace and wisdom to live a skillful, godly Christian life. But that is not what I'm hearing or observing. Why is that? Why is that? I think that John Ball, 
writing on meditation, biblical meditation, put, his, put the finger on, on the problem that we have in our day today. And he said this, without meditation, truths are devoured but not digested. Get that. The truth of God's word, like putting your mouth on a fire hose, right? And getting all this stuff in you never really gets down to the practical part of your life or starts transforming your mind and your thinking. See, there is a huge problem. If something is not digested properly in the human body, it it is expelled as waste, having no nutritional value. It just passes through. So he is saying the same thing happens in the spiritual realm. We gulp down the word of God, but we do not digest it. We gulp down the word of God, but we do not digest it. Now, listening to many sermons is not the key to growing spiritually healthy. It is only part of the means of grace for spiritual growth. James James Usher, I believe he was also a Puritan, he said this. James Usher counseled people 350 years ago to meditate. He says, one hour spent thus meditating is worth more than a thousand sermons. And this is no debasing of the word of God or a putting down of the word of God, but it is an honoring of it. He said, without meditation, our faith and understanding will remain simple and undeveloped like unripened fruit But meditating deeply on God and his word can inspire rich and loving fellowship with him. And the bottom line is this. A godly Christian is a meditating Christian. A holy Christian is a meditating Christian. A Christian who is developing a Christian mind is a meditating Christian. They are digesting the Word of God. They're allowing all the spiritual vitamins and nutrients of the Word of God to get into their mind, to get into their actions, to get into their practice, to get into their daily life, where it does actually transform the mind and make you like God, make you like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God's goal is, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And God will perform that goal, but he doesn't do it apart from the word of God. But we do have our part if we're going to resist the enemy, and we must be thinking about the word of God and getting it and chewing upon it in our mind. Donald Whitney, he said this. He says, hearing God's word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. Meditation is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until the rich tea flavor has been extracted. So allowing the word of God to to steep in our minds, 
until the biblical truths that we're learning gets into our life. That's what he's saying here. And that's what's not really happening today. Another Puritan, Thomas Watson, I said, and I believe he is correct on this. He says, it is better to meditate on one sermon than five sermons. You know why? We can't handle five sermons. It's like sitting down and having five meals in one sitting. Number one, you won't be able to finish it all, right? And number two, if you could finish it all, it would not be healthy for you. And a lot of that food is going to either get thrown up or it's going to get passed out, right? It's not going to have nutritious value for you. So in, an, in a very real way, one sermon that you really learn and really put into practice is what he's saying is more beneficial for all of us than listening to five sermons and getting nothing from them because we don't remember anything. Right? We don't remember things. We're, we, we have leaky brains that don't remember things. He also says that many complain that they do not profit from sermons. This may be the chief reason because they do not chew the cud like a cow chews it, regurgitates it up again, chews it again, regurgitates it up, and you know, how many stomachs cows have, but they get through it all and they get all the stuff they need so they can produce you know, the milk and other things. He says, they do not chew the cud. They do not meditate on what they have heard. So the bottom line is this. The divine testimony of Scripture must always govern our biblical spirituality and meditation. So what does that mean? That means this, that biblical meditation starts with listening. It starts with listening. Now, of course, if I asked you, are you a good listener? Are you a good listener? Can you give back to me what I just gave you? Can you give, the, give me the gist of it? See, listening to the Word of God is probably the most important thing that you and I could do. It was... In the book of Acts, we find that the apostles brought up a serious problem amongst the people of Israel. And the problem was this. In Acts 7, verse 51, it says, And ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. In other words, they heard the word of God preached, and what did they do? They resisted it. How did they resist it? They resisted it with their ears. Actually, the word resist in that passage meant means to fall against or to rush against. Before it could ever get to their mind and thinking, they stopped it. See, the resistance here is not just against, of course, this was in the passage of Scripture talking about Stephen, but it was against God himself. And what a great sin is committed when people resist the Holy Spirit by refusing to listen to the Word of God, by refusing to put it into practice. Again, this is not a new thing amongst people. Jeremiah the prophet said this in his, in his uh, 
writings, he says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed. They cannot listen because the word of the Lord has become what? A reproach to them and they have no delight in it. Again, if you don't delight in something, if you don't love something, you won't do it. And if you don't like the preaching of the word of God, you don't like reading the word of God, you don't, you won't do it. And if you won't do it, don't expect that you're going to grow spiritually. If you're calling yourself a Christian, don't expect it. It takes work to be a Christian, not work to gain salvation. No, never that. Work for spiritual maturity. So they stopped in reality, listening to the word of God. Oh, yes, the thing about it is they were present at the place of worship. They just stopped listening. And because they stopped listening, they misunderstood God. In fact, they must misunderstood everything else. They even misunderstood their own history as the book of uh, Acts records it. The psalm writer points out what God desires more than religious activity. And I want you to take your Bibles now and turn to Psalm 40, verse number 6. We had mentioned this uh, a little bit in our men's Ironman this Friday. And it says in that passage of Scripture, it says, Sacrifice. And meal offering, you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Now, the Hebrew word provides really a metaphor so that we can better picture what is being said in this particular passage of Scripture. The word actually, my ears you have opened, is a Hebrew word that means to dig, to excavate, like someone would dig a well or dig a cistern or dig a pit. In other words, it's really literally saying to us, ears you have not dug for me, or ears you have dug for me. In other words, if you notice in the passage of Scripture, there's busyness communicated in this passage, preparing of the offering, sacrificing to God. In other words, they were very busy in their religious performance while remaining deaf to the voice of God. So what does God do? He takes a pick and shovel and mines through the sides of the cranial granite, call our brains, our heads, making openings through which his word can pass to the mind and to the heart. That's what the passage of Scripture is saying. See, it says, my ears you have opened. Why? My ears, have, my ears were shut. And until you came along and did your work, I didn't listen. So the Christian mind is not merely to read the Word of God. The Word of God is to be heard. 
It's to be listened to. It's to be internalized. It's to be chewed upon. It's to be pondered. And then it's to be personalized. If not, it's just going through the religious motions. And God is not pleased with just religious activity. As our passage says, in another translation, it says, you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that I have made, now that you have made me listen, I finally understand that we can be very busy as Christians and not be growing in the Lord. What's more important in this passage of Scripture? That you listen to God that you think about his word. And that if you do that, that's what God uses then for you to be active in Christian work and using your gifts to build up the body and in a way that you're going to have a good attitude to do it. You're going to be doing it with joy. You're going to be doing it with gladness and thanksgiving. That's how you're going to be doing it. In fact, if you're right there in Psalm 40, look at verse number 7. It says this, Then I said, Behold, I come in a scroll of a book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord. You know, verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. In other words, when the word of God is listened to properly, then there's an outcome. That the word of God is meant to be heard, to go to the heart, to loosen the tongue. In order for us to speak joyfully of God's righteousness and God's loving kindness and God's truth, amongst the great assembly, amongst other people. This is not religious ritual. That's worship. That's what real worship is. And, of course, that leads to something else, that we ought to be memorizing the Scripture, so the Scripture is definitely being uh, on our minds on a regular basis till we flesh out and think through what it says. So when it comes to listening, how much do you think you are the problem? When mom and dad says, listen to me, how many times do you know your child is not listening to you? And you've been, you've been very clear and firm with your commands, and yet it's like you weren't even talking. Every parent experiences that. Of course, that's why the rod comes out, right? The rod drives rebellion and disobedience far from their heart. That's something else we shouldn't talk about today, I guess, either. The Word of God tells us this. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Again, another passage in Luke chapter 28. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. 
So what are, what are the benefits and effects of re- regular biblical meditation? It was R. Kent Hughes that brought this out in his book, and he says the first one would be revival. From Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. In other words, the word of God is powerful enough to revive your spirit. A second thing would be increased wisdom. He goes on to say in Psalm 119, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It will dispel wisdom to us for daily living. It also will increase our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then it will also, as I started out saying, it will maintain our joy and our peace. In fact, it was David who said, I can't wait to hit the rack because I'll get a chance to think about you. He says it in Psalm 63, 6. He says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Isn't that, so in other words, that he's meditating on the word of God day and night, and then when he goes to sleep, what is he thinking about? He's not worrying about things. He's thinking upon God, and he's delighting in it. And you know what? He gets sweet sleep at night because he's doing that. So see, the the Word of God has incredible benefits for you and I. Studying the Scripture causes a person to set their mind on things above, just as the book of Philippians teaches. In Philippians 4, Paul first says to those believers that they are to think on what is true. That's what he tells them in in Philippians. What is true? Christians must set their minds on divine truth, thinking thoughts that lead them down the narrow, well-lit path toward holiness. Christians are not to set their minds on half-truths or speculations or mere fantasies. And moreover, Christians must think about what is honorable, That is, what is serious, what is respectful, what is dignified and reverent, not cheap, mindless stupidity that we often receive from the world. All you got to do is turn on a station that's talking about politics, and you want to puke about what they're saying, because it's such foolish stupidity that has no thought in it or help for the nation in living righteously. That is like everywhere, and, and you know what? It's, it really does sicken people when that's what happens. And then, of course, he says, and what is right? In other words, what is scripturally right to do and is in, in really compliance to the duty of God and man? Believers are not to spend their time thinking sinful or dubious activities. And then a Christian must think about what is pure, What is morally pure and ethically correct? Men of God and women of God are not to have soiled and shabby and smutty thoughts. Next, Christians are to think on whatever is lovely. 
believers are, uh, assume a mindset of kindness, of forgiveness, of godlike love, not vengeance or, or bitterness or anger or division or strife, which is really pumped into us in every single movie there is. It's all, all about, I'll get back at you. You wait. You know, my fury is unmatched. And of course, and whatever is of good report, repute here. That is, whatever is of favorable report, not that which is a report of evil or full of unbelief and slander. So the redeemed mind is continually being transformed and bent toward desiring, dwelling on, and discovering God's will, and Christians are to take an active part in that process in order to stand against the devil, in order to resist him, so he leaves you for a while. And I already mentioned that the battle for spiritual growth and victory over the enemy is really a battle for the mind. This text directly points out to the Christian that their minds are the playgrounds of thoughts. And thoughts, if they are going to be godly, must be thoughts that think deeply about specific things. Thoughts that produce results. And if we look again, well, it's not on, I don't know. If we look again at this passage, if you look at the end of the passage where it says in verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And then what is the result? And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace, that's a benefit that I get by meditating upon biblical truths. Of course, verse 8 says, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That's meditation. You park there, you think about it until you get it. In fact, don't learn anything else until you get it. Don't learn anything else until you put away that sin that's been besetting you. So here we have a command for the believer to ponder, to give careful thought to a matter and consider serious meditation upon spiritual truths. And in the case of this text, your thoughts Carefully dwell on all the positive and the wholesome qualities contained in this passage of Scripture, and the peace of God will reign in your heart and your mind. It was also a Puritan named James Usher who said this, set apart some time for meditation, that the word may be engrafted in your heart, if the meat that you eat is not digested, it will, not, it will do you no good. You see the necessity of labor to retain the word, to digest it, to make it your own, that you may be transformed by it, and as a person is 
tuned into nourishment or turned into nourishment so the word of God being digested will nourish you. That's what it'll do. It'll nourish your soul. It will make you spiritually healthy. It will Bible wash you so the, so the, de- the enemy can't brainwash you. That's what it'll do. And so what can we do to start today? Well, you can start reading your Bibles at least once a year. You can read two or three devotional and theological books a year. One would be good, just one. See, the problem that we have is we buy five books, and then we don't know which one to read. Then we read one chapter here and one chapter there and there. You know, you do the same, I do the same. But the thing is that take a book and read it from cover to cover and resist reading anything else till you read that theological book and you thought through some of the things in that book. Read through the Bible. Don't, if you fall off the wagon, pick it up again and read it the next day until every year you get better at it, you read more of it. And it'll be a great exercise that you'll never want to let go once you get a handle on that. Refuse to allow our culture's media to write your program, to write your life program. Refuse to do that. And then, of course, lastly, choose a thought program which will produce a Christian mind. So this last way, or excuse me, this third way to resist the enemy is to resist the antagonists by maintaining a sanctified imagination by a biblical, by biblical meditation. That is very important for you and I to win this battle with this master deceiver. And believe me, if we do, we will, and we'll stand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning again. Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, as we just try to flesh out this this one particular thing of resistance of the enemy, Lord, help us in, in each one of these things to gain a clearer understanding, to practice them in our daily walk and daily life. And I pray, Lord, as we do so, we will be Bible-washed believers that are growing and maturing in the truth of the Word of God and able to detect the enemy's lies and deceptions and to the point where his temptations become less powerful and his twisting of the truth becomes easily detectable. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, you would make us strong so we put the whole armor of God on and that we're able to stand up against anything that is thrown at us. And, Lord, we know we don't do it in our own strength, our own ability, our own will, our own knowledge, but we do it in the knowledge that we learn from the Word of God by submitting to it, listening to it, meditating upon it. Make us these kind of believers. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.